0: Welcome to Divorce Explained, the podcast where we answer your questions and navigate the process of divorce together. Sharing real stories and personal experiences, this is your guide through it all. With your hosts, family law specialist Steve Benmore and divorce lawyer and strategist Leanne Townsend. Yes, so our topic for today is what to do if your ex-spouse is depleting assets. And this is something that you know, it's a concern for a lot of people and it does come up and it can be very alarming and create a lot of anxiety. So it's a really important issue that
1: we're discussing. So let's kick off with some basic principles. So a lot of spouses during their marriage established either joint credit cards or credit cards where they gave their spouse a secondary card which basically just means that the primary card or the only debt or the debt is only in the name of one person and the other person gets to incur debt in their name. Also, a lot of spouses set up home equity lines of credit, lines of credit where people can go and draw should they need that money. And in many cases, uh, all they need is one person to go to the bank and make the withdrawal or just go onto their phone app and transfer the money from a joint account, from a joint line of credit to a sole account. And thirdly, some people set up what are called overdrafts on their personal accounts so that if their account goes into the negative, the bank automatically um, grabs the money from another account in order to make up the difference, or in some cases, from another line of credit to do so. So in all of those cases, uh, a lot of people in the middle of divorce forget about all of that. They forget that there is an open access line of credit or credit card or overdraft. And in many cases, we lawyers don't know about it because our clients don't tell us. And then many months, sometimes years later, the client will say, oh, my God, I just found out that our HELOC, our home equity line of credit, which was at a zero balance when we split up, is now $200,000. What do I do now? So first thing we do, obviously, in that situation is immediately notify the bank to put a hold on it. Sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. And certainly if it's already maxed out, they will not draw any more money out. But for example, in some cases, there's still a balance available to be withdrawn. And in some cases, some spouses actually have to withdraw the balance strictly to cap off the level of liability. And in some cases, we'll advise clients to go ahead and make that balance withdrawal and just put the money in another account, let the other spouse know that that money wasn't stolen or taken or used, but it was just done in order to preserve the basis of the money. But back to you Leanne, um, when when you've been in this situation, what stage of it have you been brought into it? Before it happens, when it happened, after it happened? All stages um, I've been brought
0: into it. Um, I've had situations, I had a client last year where um, the spouse did exactly what you just described. They withdrew a bunch of money on the home equity line of credit without telling uh, my client. And it just so happened that her and I were working together that day and she happened to just go into her the bank account for, to, in, to answer a question that I'd asked her. And she saw this transaction that had happened um and was unexplained and was we we were not given a satisfactory explanation and in her case she ended up withdrawing the other money on the line of credit and putting it somewhere else um to protect herself and then that ended up being a big bone of contention um through the rest of the the negotiations I've been in a situation where um, I had a client where there was a concern that the spouse was imminently, she'd cashed in her pension, she retired without telling him um, and was about to take off to Costa Rica. Um and so fortunately we were, we were able to bring an urgent motion and freeze uh, you know that 's the extreme measure in these types of cases if you 're concerned that somebody's going to you know leave with money or their you know, dissipating um, properties and assets and things like that, you can get a bank, uh, you have to bring a motion and you get a court order for um, where a judge asks that or orders that, you know, these bank accounts be frozen and even the person whose name they're in cannot then transact business. That's a very extreme remedy, but it's certainly... Gets the attention of the other side and gets their cooperation because nobody wants to have their their bank accounts frozen. But in some cases, you know, in this particular case, it was very much necessary and we got the order. Um, And I've certainly, you know, in, in a lot of cases, there can be post separation uh, adjustments where you know one party or the other or both have taken certain amounts out of joint accounts and or run up joint expen- expenses on a joint you know credit card and things like that and there has to be an accounting if it's post separation um but you know where i think it gets particularly concerning is if in the you know prior to separation but perhaps in contemplation of separation if you, you know, find out about something that the other side
1: has done, um, you know, that's where it's a bit trickier. So, I want to bring up what you just mentioned. One point you mentioned is the subject of post-separation adjustments, and many of our viewers don't even know what that really means. So, I want to be very clear about it. When a couple splits up, and they're a married couple that split up, there is this concept that the date of separation, not the day before, not the day after, but the date of separation is also called the valuation date. And that's the date that cuts off any ongoing sharing of liability and uh, any ongoing sharing of equity. And so the valuation date is the cutoff date. But what's often happens is despite the cutoff date, the V date, um, there is ongoing financial behavior after the date of separation. In other words, bills will be paid by one person for the other Um, one person will make a disproportionate contribution say for example towards the mortgage or the property taxes on the home somebody might withdraw money like we talked about in the last few minutes from a joint account or a joint line of credit and so these financial behaviors subsequent to the v-date to the cutoff date are what we then call post separation adjustments so that for example husband Um, paid 100% of the mortgage and wife did not pay any of the mortgage and the house sold two years later, there could be a contribution that the wife has to make towards the last two years of mortgage payments so as to equalize those mortgage payments. I say might because every case is very specific. Now, having said that, let's talk about preventative action. Preventative action is avoiding post-separation adjustments. And by the way, that's the very best advice that I can give anybody is because for those people that believe that they will get that money back later, don't take that to the bank. Because what we've seen, we divorce lawyers have seen many times is once that money is gone, the person that took the money will come up with the most creative arguments as to why that money should not be repaid. A typical one is he should have paid me spousal support and he didn't. So I had to withdraw the $200,000 because how was I going to live for the last two years? Had he paid me the proper amount of spousal support, then I wouldn't have needed to take $200,000. And, and based on what I say he should have paid me, I should have gotten 220000 And so therefore, the $200,000 that I got was a deal for him and I don't have to repay it. That's just one small example. There's many other ones out there. So, where possible, um, batten down the hatches right at or after the date of separation, so as to prevent the possibility of any leakage. Definitely, I think that's
0: great advice. And you know, one thing for people to keep in mind as well is that you know, with these types of things, there's usually, you know, 99.9% of the time, there is a paper trail. So, you know, if you're concerned that your spouse moved some money or did something, you know, especially if it's involving a bank or a credit card, there's going to be a paper trail. So, you know, post-separation, we can connect the dots, and, you know, if if your lawyer can't do it, if it's more complicated and requires forensic accounting, I mean, that can be done. So, you know, in a lot of these situations, there is a paper trail, so if it's happened, um you know don't despair that it can't be tracked down or traced and and fixed that you know your spouse is going to have to account for this um but ideally you don't want to be in that type of situation um i'm curious steve what your position is i've seen situations where um an opposing party was you know planning a separation and they went and retained a lawyer before letting the spouse know they were going to leave and they took a big chunk of money you know $20,000, $30,000 20000 30000 um, out of a joint account um, and paid it to their lawyer as a, a retainer payment for you know, legal fees to come. Um, what are your thoughts on advising clients to do things like that?
1: Well, that's considered a self-help remedy. Now, in some cases, both sides behave the same way in which case most judges, lawyers, and mediators will say, well, what's good for the goose is good for the gander and don't see the need for any punitive or remedial action. However, in many cases, one person does it and the other person is aggrieved. And in that situation, the aggrieved person, although you would think that they're in the power position, oftentimes is the one chasing after the person that did it. And that's why I say to you, uh, preventive, Preventative action is far better. But, but to your question, Leanne, um, the, the twist to your question is that the person took the money out and labeled it lawyer retainer, somehow thinking that that might shield the behavior or alternatively neutralize the negative implications of it. I'm not so sure that's the case. Now, if the retainer is $5,000, I don't think anybody is going to be miffed by it. But if the retainer is $50,000 or $100,000, people are going to say, well, why would the lawyer need that size of a retainer? And by the way, for those that don't know, there is this concept called interim disbursements. Interim disbursements are where one spouse has a lawyer, the other spouse does not. And the one that does not have a lawyer doesn't have the money to hire a lawyer because all the money is with the other spouse. In cases like that, you can bring what's called a motion for interim disbursements whereby you ask the person with the money to either loan or advance money to the person without the money in order to allow them to retain a lawyer. Now that would be the legal, lawful, and procedurally proper way to do it, unlike your situation, Leanne, where someone just did it on their own behalf without getting any prior consent and approval
0: yes and i agree i think you know generally
1: courts frown upon self-help remedies but
0: um you know people do do them and and the sad reality is that in cases where they happen often it puts the other person in the position of trying to to play up or get something back that they've lost because of this, uh, the other party using this form of remedy. So while I don't, as a, as a lawyer, I don't condone it, um, you know, from a, my own sort of ethics perspective, there's nothing illegal about it. Um, people do it. And sometimes it works to their advantage if they do so.
1: And again, very few cases go the whole distance to trial. At a trial, you can claim every last parking chip. But in settlements, there's a lot of compromises, sacrifices and concessions made. And when it comes to post-separation adjustments, that's often the thing that is let go. Not because a person who didn't get the money should get the money. They should get the money. But when we are negotiating the buyout and the sale of matrimonial homes or cottages, when we're negotiating child support and spousal support, the division of pensions, the division of RRSPs, the post-separation adjustment category, in my experience in the last 30 years, is the one area that is given the least amount of attention by mediators and judges. Uh, Because by the time they get to that, they've already dealt with so many of the bigger issues. So again, full circle, if it can be avoided, avoid it. And if it could be neutralized or mitigated, do so by shutting down those open valves that could otherwise be pouring out a lot of your hard-earned money unbeknownst to you, whether it's a joint account or a joint credit facility like a line of credit or a credit card, Um, lock it down shortly after you split up. Yeah, that's great advice and I
0: think that's what people, you know, need to keep in mind in these types of situations. Date of separation, you are now going to be a separate couple and you're going to have to account for your expenses and you don't want to end up being on the line. For something and I, you know I always say it's kind of like this in in a lot of areas of law the possession is nine tenths of the law so if somebody's taking the money it's harder to get it back even though there's remedies and you may very well but you're just that you're chasing it so um, shut it down before somebody has an opportunity to take it and you know if you both are contributing to something contribute from separate accounts to the common expense, you don't need to have a joint account or empty the joint account and put the money in specific to an expense, but I recommend you don't even have a joint account.
1: Yeah, the date of separation is the date that two spouses should begin behaving as financially separate and all behavior should follow that formula, including the management of all accounts.
0: Well, I think we've covered this topic fairly well. So thank you, Steve. Thanks to our listeners. And we'll see everybody here again next week on uh, Divorce Explained. Bye, Leanne. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Divorce Explained. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to head on over to Instagram and follow at Steve Benmore and at Leanne Townsend Life for more. And if you're looking for specific divorce services, you can visit benmore.com and leannetownsend.ca. We hope today's episode made you feel informed and inspired as you move along through your divorce journey. Tune in next week for Divorce Explained.